People want to get in. They want to get in on the first day. They are so excited to see art in person again. They're so excited to see people in person again. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. There's a scene at the end of Snowpiercer where they leave the hellish bullet train and see that the frozen tundra is starting to melt, that nature is coming back to life. That kind of gives you the sense of the relief that the art market is hoping to feel next week when Miracle of Miracles, the Freeze New York Art Fair, opens to real in-person audiences, becoming the first major art fair to return to life since the coronavirus pandemic shut down the international art calendar along with the rest of the world in March of last year. After all, Art fairs are, for better or worse, the lifeblood of the art industry, a place where collectors and professionals meet, greet, and do a huge chunk of their business, and they have been sorely missed. Marking a new beginning as the pandemic begins to wane, Freeze New York will also be a swan song of sorts for Loring Randolph, who has overseen the fair since 2017 and will now be stepping down to become the director of the Nancy A. Nasher and David J. Hemisiger collection in Dallas this fall. So what can we expect from Freeze New York's comeback next week? And is the art world really ready to go back to art fairs? To find out, I'm very happy to have the legendary Loring Randolph on the show today. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Loring. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I love this image of the ending of Snowpiercer as what's going to frame our conversation today. <laughs> I'm just hoping that there's not like a sequel <laughs> to Snowpiercer. I really want it to be an upbeat return to life. And you may have noticed that I called you legendary in the introduction, and that's because you are the stuff of legend to me. And here's why. You know, in 2017, when you took the helm of Freeze New York, the fair was challenging enough already. It takes place literally on an island, Randall's Island, and not just in any tent, but in a tent that has two Guinness world records for its size. It also takes place in March, which in New York City, everybody knows, is highly mercurial when it comes to the weather. One year, the tent flooded in a rainstorm. Another year, it got hit by a heat wave. Last year, the fair got hit by a pandemic. And you still managed to keep it going, bring the fair online. I am very excited to see what happens this year. <laughs> so it's something like out of the Old Testament. How has this girded you for being the first fair to come back out of the gate since COVID struck? You know, having to cancel the fair in 2020 and to be one of the first fairs that moved totally online, I think that really prepared us for the year ahead. I don't think anybody could have predicted how long the pandemic was going to plague everything and everyone, what kind of situation we were going to be in this spring with the rollout of the vaccine, with travel restrictions in place. And so we just planned as best we could with the shed in order to try to be able to have an in-person event this spring in May. The conversations that we had with them were extremely helpful and very positive. Obviously, moving the fair from a tent on Randall's Island into a building that has the infrastructure and the capabilities that the flexible space of the shed has was very beneficial to us and made it a lot easier, I think, for us to plan for all of the unexpected things that we had to anticipate were coming in 2021 when we were discussing this with them in 2020. And this, of course, is a state-of-the-art facility that's in the Hudson Yards luxury complex. 
it's in what they call the Bloomberg Building. Yes, it's on the west side of Manhattan, and it is an absolutely beautiful space. I'm actually here right now in the shed, <laughs> looking out over the Hudson, and it's really an unprecedented space in New York. It's stunning. I think the fair is going to look beautiful here. So it's no secret that art fairs occupy a central place in the art business. And they've also been like a huge part of the art world's social life as well. You know, I think we actually met at an art fair years ago when you were still working at Casey Kaplan. And now since the pandemic, unfortunately, our relationship with fairs has gotten a little bit more complicated. For instance, I myself came down with COVID last March during the Armory Show, and now I'm fully vaccinated and I can't wait to, you know, go back to an art fair, which kind of goes to show my kind of adult state of mind. But how did you manage to work with Freeze and work with The Shed to make this first one as comfortable, safe and reassuring as possible? Well, again, just being within a building, we are much more able to comply with health and safety regulations by the CDC, by the state and by the city. And we have a very comprehensive health and safety plan that has been sent around to all visitors who will come to the shed, to all staff of galleries, and obviously all freeze staff and all of the staff of the shed have to comply by the exact same rules. With all of that in place, including obviously the basic things that I think most of us are used to by now, which is mandatory mask wearing and sanitization and temperature checks and screenings as you walk into the building. I think we feel as good as we can feel about the kinds of things that we have in place in order to keep our staff, visitors and others safe when they experience the fair next week. So you mentioned the CDC guidelines. Were there any kind of developments or amenities that you guys put together based on feedback recommendations that you got from dealers or collectors or other people in the art field? Yes, of course. I think one of the things that Freeze does really well is it prides itself on its communication with galleries and obviously with others in the art world. But I think that the galleries are our constituents, they're our clients, they're what make the fairs possible. And so in conversation with them, and this was both with local galleries and with galleries from overseas, we understood what their needs were, what the needs of their staff are, there was an entire forum just for the staff of galleries to air their concerns to Freeze about how they felt like they were being taken care of and what the kinds of things that we had done to ensure their safety were. It's definitely shaped and formed all of our decision making in terms of how did we construct this plan. And you can read through the plan on the website. And obviously, you can read through the plan in any of the emails that have been sent around about the fair. It's all very straightforward and outlined in those documents. And just to be totally clear for our listeners, is it a requirement to have a recent COVID test or your Excelsior pass or some kind of proof of vaccination? In order to enter on site, you have to show that you have had a negative PCR test or that you were fully vaccinated within 14 days of arriving. On site. So even if you are fully vaccinated, for example, I'm fully vaccinated now since yesterday. Yay. But I will still have to be tested every few days in order to enter the shed. Obviously, as we know, the pandemic has been proceeding at different paces around the world. And Freeze New York, just like all the other Freeze Fairs, are global events. And this has obviously impacted the exhibitor list because when you first announced the list of exhibitors a little while ago. It was already smaller than a usual fair at 66 galleries. And then since then, I think 22 of the international galleries 
have had to back out because they weren't able to fulfill the regulations to get to the fair in order to really put on a good show. And these have been replaced by 17 much more local galleries. And I wonder how has this kind of played out and how is this shaping the fair? I guess it's going to be much more of like a global kind of fair than usual, or how would you say it? You know, Rebecca Siegel, Victoria, and myself, but this was really led by Rebecca. She wanted to get out in front of this right from the beginning, and she recognized that we didn't want to put galleries who were coming from overseas in a situation where they didn't have enough time to think about whether or not they actually thought it was viable for them to come over and to participate in an in-person event. And we reached out to all of those galleries in the months leading up to the fair, really saying, do you want to commit to this or not? And we want to give you the opportunity if you think because of the regulations that are still in place and we didn't know when those regulations were going to lift, that it might be either too complicated for you to come or impossible for you to come. Whatever decision that people make is the right decision for them at the time. And a lot of them made the decision that they were unsure whether or not they were going to be able to come because of travel restrictions. And so they decided to do the online offering instead of do the in-person fair. We haven't had one gallery who has completely dropped the fair. They just moved their presentations from being in-person to online. And that meant that there was opportunity for galleries who were in New York or in the surrounding area to participate in the fair. I don't know if you remember this, but in the beginning, we had restricted who could apply to the shed to only those people who had applied to Randall's Island. And that was something that was a very specific conversation that we had had with the committee because it was about the loyalty of the galleries who had done the fair on Randall's Island for the last few years and giving those people the opportunity to benefit from us moving from Randall's Island to the shed. As the situation progressed and it became clear that potentially some of our core constituents from overseas weren't going to be able to travel here and participate in the fair this year in its physical iteration. You know, we opened it up and we were able to kind of communicate with some of the galleries who had reached out to us prior to that, who said that they were very interested in doing it. And if we were opening up the option for galleries to apply who hadn't applied on Rails Island, that they would like to participate. And we were able to do that. And the jigsaw puzzle of how this all comes together came together. And I think it's going to be a great fair. It's a wonderful mix of people. On the other hand of the art fair, you've got the dealers. And then, of course, you have the collectors. So what kind of feedback or sentiment have you been getting from the VIPs about this fair and how they're approaching it and how comfortable they are with coming to the fair? VIPs are excited. I've kind of tried to take a little bit of a step back from doing the day-to-day -day stuff with VIP interaction and with other things. And Caitlin Lykik, who's our head of VIP, and Rebecca and others have been inundated with that. But recently, over the last week, I have received so many text messages, so many emails from people saying that they want to come. And obviously, we've stepped the entry because only a certain number of people can enter at a time. And people want to get in. They want to get in on the first day. They are so excited to see art in person again. They're so excited to see people in person again. Again, I think a lot of people are fully vaccinated, so they feel more confident about being out and about and about interacting with multiple people during the day. And so we've experienced a lot of enthusiasm. I'm even surprised as to the amount of enthusiasm that we have received. And I think it's just the unique position that we're in, that we are one of the first events to happen since everything shut down in 2020. 
That's so exciting. So what can these visitors expect to see when they actually come to the shed? And how does it compare with what they would see, you know, in Freeze New Yorks of years past? Fairs look like fairs. It looks relatively the same for the most part. Galleries have booths. The difference is that the shed occupies multiple floors. Instead of everything being on one level, we are taking over the entire gallery spaces in the shed. So on the ground level floor, floors two and floors four and floor six. And then on floor eight, we will have some artist projects as well as some of our partners, including Ruin Art and other things. Um, we will not have food on site, but you will be able to get a drink if you need to. One of the main differences is that we have the main area of the fair, which includes a lot of our core international galleries. And then we have the frame section, which is where galleries 10 years or younger show solo projects by artists who maybe people don't know that much about, artists whose careers are kind of just in their early or mid-early stages. And that's always an exciting part of the fair. And that's something that has transitioned from Randall's Island, where it was kind of the heart of the center of the fair on Randall's Island into the shed. We still have our online offering. So this is the first time... I believe that outside of what we were able to do in London, which was a kind of hybrid offering with events and an online fair, but this is really the first time that we've had an actual physical in-person fair running alongside an online fair. And there'll be many more galleries in the online fair than are at the shed. So that is something that I'm interested to know how this works and how this plays out and who attends both who attends the in-person fair and not the digital offering or who attends the digital offering and not the in-person fair. I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to look at things and to interact here in whatever way they want to. And that's different and that's really exciting too. You know, you mentioned Rebecca Siegel. And as you're transitioning, Rebecca Siegel is the former publisher of Freeze Magazine, who is going to be taking over the portfolio of Director of the Americas, and that's going to include Freeze New York and Freeze Los Angeles. So in transitioning out, you've really been focusing on the programming for this fair. And one of the really high profile components of the programming is a collaboration you're doing with the Vision and Justice Project. We are paying tribute to Professor Sarah Elizabeth Lewis and the Vision and Justice Project, but in a way that is completely unprecedented in terms of how any fair, I believe, has considered programming in the past. And that is, we have tried to involve all of the galleries who are participating in the fair and any institutions who want to participate as well in honoring what the Vision and Justice Project is. And what it is, for those people who are not familiar, is it's a multifaceted initiative. It's an educational initiative that was founded by Professor Lewis, started within her curriculum at Harvard University, and expanded into an award-winning issue of Aperture Magazine in 2016 that featured this amazing list of African-American image makers. And then from there, in 2019, the conversation opened up, and it was really in the the earlier stages about the history of image making. It kind of took a deep dive through that and looked at how visual literacy has ensued from there and, you know, how it's been shaped by the visuals that have been put out into the world and how the art world has had a certain level of criticality about this. At its deepest core mission, it is dedicated to examining art's role in understanding the relationship between race and citizenship or belonging in the United States. And so, 
From image making in 2019, Professor Lewis organized a convening of scholars and artists and historians and others. And the conversation really opened up from it being about film and photography and into art more generally and into other realms of artistic representation through two days of conversation. And this was hosted by the Radcliffe Institute. For me, I had met Sarah when I was in my 20s and I was completely in awe of her. This is when she worked at MoMA and we shared a cab ride together. And I just thought to myself, in that moment, in that cab ride, I think it was like 25 or something, gosh, I want to work with this person whenever I have the opportunity to do so. She's intelligent in ways that I'm definitely not. My father always said, surround yourself by people who are more intelligent than you. That's what I constantly strive to do in my life. And there is something really, really interesting about the fact that if we can reach more people with this, if more people learn about the Vision and Justice Project, it has the potential to advance visual literacy and to alter the lens by which people see the world. And I think that what we've experienced is that so many people are interested in uplifting this message and are interested in showcasing what this education is, that we've had over 50 galleries and institutions respond to this. And they've responded by either showcasing their own programming, doing walkthroughs of exhibitions, showing artworks that they think are a part of this conversation. But they've also crafted a lot of discussions. They've organized talks. This particular program isn't just about the fair. It's about something bigger than the fair. It's about looking all around us. And when you're looking at the things that are going on individually in these isolated moments, that's one thing. But seeing this whole program come together across all these different spaces in the city, it makes it a much larger, a much more powerful force. And so I'm thrilled that we've sort of been able to have this unprecedented level of engagement with the art world community about their interest in the Vision and Justice Project. It sounds remarkable and it sounds like something that's quintessentially freeze in that it's not just about the art market, but using the art market to really advance or showcase something that is an urgent conversation. And another highlight of the programming is going to be a special performance by the artist Precious Okoyaman, who was the winner of the Art Fair's prestigious Artist Award this year. Can you tell me a little bit about the artist and what their performance will consist of? Yes, this is why I'm actually at the shed today, is that performance with Precious is happening today. The Artist Award was chaired by Jenny Schlinska Performance Space, and this performance is coinciding with their exhibition of Precious Koyaman at Performance Space, which is open for the next couple of weeks. So Precious is a Brooklyn-based artist, poet. They are, as Jenny so aptly pointed out, an alchemist, and... There's a lot of things that go into the process of building the either live action events or the installations that Precious has done in the past that involve their ability to do this kind of extensive research. What the title for the performance today is This God is a Slow Recovery. And Okoyaman has constructed a very abstract Tower of Babel of sorts, together with industrial designer Jonathan Olivares. And throughout this afternoon, the performance will begin around noon, and Precious has invited friends of theirs who are performers, who are poets. And each one of these people is going to read their own poetry simultaneously layered on top of one of the other poets reading their poetry, standing on this Tower of Babel structure, which is draped in camouflage netting. And then on top of that, Okoyaman has written a poem for the occasion called Sky Song. 
And all of this is going to be accompanied by a trio of strings playing. So it's going to be this multi-layered, multi-sensory experience. And I don't think any of us are kind of prepared for exactly what it's going to be. But if you are in town, Andrew, and you want to go, let me know and I'll sneak you in. (laughs) Definitely. Oh, that's great. I would absolutely love to actually see a art performance in person, especially something that sounds as much of a moment. The special thing about this is that we are filming it. It will be recorded. And when you arrive at the fair or if you go on Teresa's website next week, you will be able to experience it online. It will be Mm -hmm. played on a screen on the eighth floor on a loop. So anybody who would like to see it, if they attend the event in person, can go up there and sit down and have that experience. And for those people who are not attending, you are going to be able to view it on freeze.com. So that's a perfect segue because in addition to the fair's IRL programming this year, you've also got a really robust online component. And, um, you know, this stems from what you guys did last year when in this really kind of state of emergency, you put together an online edition of the fair. These things have been useful for some kinds of activities. They haven't proven as useful in terms of the market as maybe some people were hoping over the course of the pandemic. How has your thinking about the online component and how it meshes with the in-person fair, how has that kind of evolved over the year and how does that led to what we're going to find next week? Well, I think it's led by what galleries and artists want to show. I think what has happened has been that so much of what artists have been able to produce in the last year hasn't been seen. And so people are thinking about how do I adapt what I'm making or what I'm doing to present itself online? Or because our event at the Shed is the first moment where we're going to have more than just a single appointment at a time coming into a gallery, where more exposure is going to be had for artists at the fair, how do we augment what it is that we're showing in person at the fair by using our online platform to do so? And I don't have all of the information about what is being shown online yet. What's so funny about this year, which is unique to other years, is that I think that everybody was waiting until the last minute to kind of put things online or to commit to what they were showing at the fair because everybody was really nervous that the event wasn't going to happen or something was going to happen again. We were going to swing back into this deep, dark dungeon of a moment where COVID was going to be rampant and everybody was going to be afraid and we were going to have to cancel. And the fact that it's happening and that everything is going online and people are showing things at the fair, galleries have been kind of keeping their cards close, and now are unveiling some really exciting projects for both in-person at the fair and online. And so I think what will be different this year is I think people are going to go to the fair and they're going to go online and they're going to see things that maybe they haven't seen before instead of having all the images circulated earlier, which I think is actually really nice. There's going to be an element of surprise, I think, especially in the physical iteration. So we talked a little bit about how central fairs are to the gallery business. And I believe pre-pandemic, it was estimated they account for about 40% of a gallery's annual revenue on average. And I wonder, how has this pandemic changed your view or taught you something new about how critical fairs are for galleries and how hard it is for galleries to function without fairs or not, if that's not the case? I think it's shown good and bad things, things we can learn from, right? I think that One of the things that people really miss most about fairs is being around everybody and being able to 
have face-to-face time means that magic happens in ways that you weren't expecting and that you can achieve different levels of progress with collectors or with writers or with historians in ways that you weren't able to communicate with them over email or over the phone. And so that, I think, is really one of the most important things that art fairs do is they bring us all together under one roof. I think that the other thing that is really helpful is having these moments where you get people's attention. You know, we're all so busy and Zoom and all these technological quote-unquote advancements that have been made because we've been in lockdown in our homes for the last year are actually making it so much harder to turn off at the end of the day where your work is sort of bleeding into your personal life even more than it was previously. That I think that art fairs do provide this moment where people focus. They focus on what an artist is doing. And even if it's just for a few days, they're highly focused on looking at the art world and going to exhibitions, seeing things at art fairs might spark deep interest in something, seeing art in person. As much as we all know that everybody buys now online, everybody looks at art online. That is just a given at this point. But we all still really crave standing in front of that installation or that sculpture, that painting, and having that visceral thing hit you in the gut and think, oh, that is amazing. Or gosh, this is making me uncomfortable. All of the other things that are felt or thought when you have that visceral in-person experience. And so for those reasons, I think fairs are here to stay. I mean, not to mention that every single trade organization has a fair, and that's not something unique to the art world. But I do think that money-wise, galleries definitely saw a decrease in revenue, but they saw a decrease in spending too, because fairs cost money to do, and it just depends on really what level of gallery we're talking about and what they choose to bring or not bring. And I know that when I was working at the gallery with Casey, we sometimes did fairs where what we were hoping for was really just to expose an artist to a lot of people so that they knew who this new artist was, who we were working with, what it was that they made. And we were able to have these in-person dialogues at a much higher frequency and higher density than we were in the gallery. And I think that that's just the reality of fairs. And I think online offerings have helped that, but it does not replace talking to somebody face-to-face. So the art fair landscape has been changing over recent years. And now post-pandemic, it seems that there's potentially going to be an inflection point because, you know, now Freeze is owned by the Hollywood behemoth Endeavor, which is like this gigantic entertainment colossus that is hooked up with the Ultimate Fighting Championships and is just this huge cultural force. And then Art Basel, meanwhile, is now owned by the visionary technocrat mogul James Murdoch of the Rupert Murdoch Murdoch, who you may have heard of. And it seems like there's going to be a lot of transformation going forward. And so now that you're kind of stepping away from the fair thing, how do you think art fairs will, may, or maybe, you know, should evolve going forward? I think art fairs just need to continue to listen to the art world, continue to listen to artists, continue to listen to galleries. Art fairs are here to help to serve the community in that sense. And so 
if galleries are evolving and artists are evolving in terms of what they're making, which they are, we all know that, then art fairs have to evolve alongside that. And obviously, Freeze New York has changed itself a lot over the last year, not only introducing an online offering for galleries and artists to show their work to reach people globally who might not be attending the fair in person in New York, but also in terms of downscaling the fair from Randall's Island and moving it into a building, into the shed, and responding to what conversations that we had had with people about wanting to experience art an institution. And so I think in that regard, our fair at least has adapted. But are there interesting things going on with NFT ideas and virtual reality experiences and and these kinds of things? Sure, I do. But again, to reiterate what I said before, I don't think that those things replace seeing something in person. Well, wow, it sounds like a really exciting time in a lot of ways. And I, you know, I can't wait to see you at the fair next week. I can't wait to see the fair. I wish you the best of luck with everything after the fair. Uh, So thanks very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to check out Shattering the Glass Ceiling, our exciting new podcast miniseries focusing on inspiring women in the art world, now coming out Wednesdays. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.